Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And I'm going to read this chapter. For I have given all this to my heart, and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their service are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything may be before him. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is confidence. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished. And they will never again have a portion in all that is done under the sun. Go then, eat your bread in gladness, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. See life with the woman whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given to you under the sun, all the days of your vanity, for this is your portion in life, and in your labor in which you have labored under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no working or explaining or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the mighty, and neither is bread to the wise, nor riches to the discerning, nor favor to men who know, for time and misfortune overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time, like fish seized in an evil net and birds seized in a trap. So the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it was great to me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and built large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he provided a way of escape for the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in restfulness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for guiding us as we have um, been going through this book over the past um, weeks and, and months and the wisdom that we have uh, gleaned from it. And as we look at this chapter, uh, many of the same lessons, but seen in a different light. So as we look at some of the same lessons, but from a different perspective. Help us to continue to glean wisdom and to draw wisdom from these sayings of Solomon and the things he has observed that we might apply the same truths to our lives and that we may walk in wisdom and live uh, in a way which honors you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was growing up in the 80s, I remember um, seeing several commercials on TV, and uh, there was one commercial I, I saw over and over again about a board game, and uh, it was called The Game of Life. <laughs> Talk about this board game and, and play the game of life, and it, it would explain it. And what's interesting is as much as I've heard about the game of life, and i even seen it, I've never actually played it, but nonetheless that... Um, those commercials had an impact on me and just understanding the game of life and, and so much so that, you know, just seeing it over and over again, those advertisements, that I th would think about my life and, and what would happen in my life. And, and I really wanted to, um, in, in a sense, uh, win at the game of life. 
you know. And, and so I, I could even at a young, young age and even without ever playing the game, I could um, see the analogy and the illustration. And uh, in thinking about just this passage and all these lessons that, that Solomon is, is trying to teach us about life and how to live life, I, I thought about this game and I just decided to... Um, look it up uh, online and, and see a little bit about the history of this game. And I was really amazed. Um, uh, one source says that the game was originally created in 1860 by Milton Bradley as the checkered game of life. And it was the first, cr first game created by B Bradley, who was a successful lithographer. The game of life was the United States' first popular parlor game. So if you know a little bit about, um, uh, I guess, history or, you know, um, and architecture, there used to, and homes, there used to be parlors. We don't, might not call them parlors anymore, but some homes have parlors where people would meet and enjoy one another before radio and TV and they would play games. <laughs> and, uh, so this was one of the first popular parlor games. Uh, this source goes on and says, The game simulates a person's travels through their life, from early adulthood to retirement, with college if necessary, jobs, marriage, and possible children along the way. The game sold 45,000 copies by the end of its first year. And like many 19th century games, it had a strong moral message. In 1960, the modern game of life was introduced. It consisted of a track which passes along over and through small mountains, buildings, and other features. A player travels along the track in a small plastic automobile. Each car has six holes into which pegs are added as the player gets married and acquires children. The game of life was updated in 1991 to reward players for good behavior, such as recycling trash and helping the homeless. The spaces that force players to go back were then removed starting with this version and it's interesting just the history of this game all the way back to 1860 and just you see the illustration the analogy and just the significance of the fact that our lives are important and we know that our lives will um come with many twists and turns and many events and, and there's um, some generalities in our lives as well as, as such as um, growing up, finding a career, getting married, maybe school, maybe children. But we also know that there's, um, there's ups and downs, there's tragedies, there's challenges, there's blessings. And, and there is a sense as you know, I was when I was a, a young boy and I'd see the advertisements, there is a sense within all of us that we really want to do well at the game of life. We would like to win the game of life if, if we could. And as we've been looking through Ecclesiastes, it is a sense uh, uh, Solomon's repentance. As he almost looks back on his life, he writes this book at the end of his life. And as much as he was blessed with wisdom and riches and honor and power and influence, there's a sense where he failed in many ways. And he looks back, and I, and I, as many others, believe this is a part of his repentance. And it's a part of him teaching us how we can successfully play the game of life, the real game of life. How we can live wisely in this world and, and live in a way that honors God. In this chapter, it, it's, there's a sense in which Solomon gives us rules for how to play the real game of life. And he, he does so in two categories. Um, this chapter is, in a sense, almost split in half. And there's two categories of how to play the game of life in the do's and the don'ts. Uh, the rules of do this and don't do this. And so we'll look at this chapter in, in that fashion, in that outline two categories, the do's and then the don'ts. So first, what you need to do in the game of life. What you need to do in the game of life, verses 1 to 10. And uh, we have uh, five lessons here. The first, the first lesson is this. Understand that your life is in God's hands. Understand that your life is in God's hands. That's a first rule to uh, successfully win at the game of life or to successfully navigate the game of life is to understand that your life is in God's hands. 
Verse 1, for I have given all this to my heart and explain it that righteous men, wise men, and their service are in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything may be before him. We need to acknowledge that, that God has created us. We are a creation and that our lives are in God's hands. Uh, the extent of our lives and the circumstances of our lives. They're, they're all in God's hands. And that can be um, either comforting or frustrating or terrifying, de- depending on your view of God or, or your relationship with God. There's, there's one psalm, and, and you know I, I really enjoy the psalms, and I go to the psalms, and, and you should go to the psalms in times of, of trouble or just as... You know, part of my devotional plan, ever since I, I was a new believer, I always would read psalms as part of my devotional plan. And uh, I remember um, uh, reading what Charles Spurgeon uh, said about the psalms. And he would, would talk specifically about David, that he, he was never so low that he didn't find David to be lower. And he was never so high that he didn't find David to be higher. In, in a sense, saying that, Whatever trouble I'm facing, I can go to the Psalms and I can see uh, one of the Psalms or a couple of the Psalms where the psalmist relates to my trouble and is a help to me. And one such Psalm, which um, uh, in a sense uh, relays what Solomon is saying here in verse 1, is Psalm 139. So turn with me there for a moment, Psalm 139. And, And this is... A psalm of David, and it's one of those psalms in which you can almost get the sense that David, as many times in his life, was in a a time of trial and challenge. And it's not so much that he is saying um, new things about God or discovering new things about God. It's almost as if he is comforting himself with the knowledge of God. And God's relationship with him. And here we we see that David himself understands that his life is in God's hands. As he says in in the beginning of Psalm 139, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shield, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will bruise me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not too dark for you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. This, all of this, all, this whole psalm, he's just going uh, through the different aspects of his life and the relationship of his life with God, that there's no place he can go that, that God is not there. He cannot escape from the presence of God. And, and there's, there's nothing about him that God does not know, um, things uh, that is, in a sense, too, too wonderful for him. I, I, I think about this, and, and I think uh, of the simple fact that there's not a piece of information that God does not know. He knows every cell in our body. He knows our thoughts. He knows our attitudes. Um, He knows all the days of our lives. Even so much so that even David has to relate here in in verse 17. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. you. You are there. So he, he could 
even say, as he says in another psalm, my times are in your hand. You, you know it all. There's no escape. Uh, my life, everything, it, it's, it's in your hands. And that's, in a sense, almost the beginning of wisdom, so to speak, this fear of the Lord, as, as Solomon would write in the Proverbs, that um, acknowledging that God has created you and God owns you and God has um, designated your place in life and guide you. He guides the circumstances of your life as well, as Solomon would say in verse 1 of uh, Ecclesiastes 9, that man does not know whether it will be love or hatred, or, or good or bad, so to speak. Whether he will receive love from man or God, or hatred from man or God, anything may be before him. It, it's, you know, the possibilities are endless. Yes, we, we make plans and we, we are responsible for our actions and we make choices and, and we uh, chart out our path in life, but ultimately God is in control. As the Proverbs say, um, man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. We read about this as, as you know, the Apostle Paul was, was um, confronting um, the Greeks and, and their, their false religion on Mars Hill, and he was evangelizing them, and, and he, he, in a sense, it says that his spirit was stirred up within him because he saw all of their, their idols, and they even had one to the unknown God. And he goes to evangelize them in Acts 17, and he says this. He says, Acts 17, verse 25, He himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to inhabit all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Our, our lives are in God's hands. He's created us. He's created the world. He has determined where we will live and, and the time and place in which we will live, the, the nation, the you know, culture, uh, our families. He's, in, in a sense, as Paul says, he's set up boundaries for our habitation. And, and, and we can, you know, if we're sensitive to providence and we look back in our lives, we can say uh, and, and see that, um, you know, there was times in our lives where we were intent on going one direction, either in terms of job or career or school or relationship. And, and, and for whatever reason, events took place that either halted that or we had events happen in our lives which were the catalyst to bring us to a different place which we never thought we would be in. God guides us. He directs us. <clears throat> and David himself, he comforts him. He comforts himself with this fact in Psalm 139, but many of the other Psalms, Psalm 23, and here in Psalm 31, as he um, expresses in Psalm 31, verse 13, terror is on every side while they took counsel together against me. They schemed to take my life talking about this trial that he's in. Maybe it's at that point in time in his life when he's on the run from Saul or from the Philistines or from Absalom, but whatever the case may be, he is in trouble. And he says in verse 14 of Psalm, 1, of Psalm 31, But as for me, I trust in you. O Yahweh, I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. My times are in your hand. Whether those times be good or bad or, or the length of them, the extent of my life or the circumstances of my life, whatever it may be, my life is in your hands. And so the first lesson Solomon teaches us is to understand that your life is in God's hands. Second, understand that you only have one life. Understand that you only have one life, verses 2 and 3. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers the sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. <clears throat> as a good man is, so is a sinner. As a swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. 
This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that there is one fate for all. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Understand that you only have one life, and it, it doesn't change, uh, you know, whether, whether you're good or bad, evil, uh, righteous, whatever the case may be, you only have one life. And sometimes the length and, and the circumstances of your life aren't in accord with the behavior or the style of your life, whether you're good and righteous and upright or whether you're wicked and foolish. One commentator, he writes this, he says, In short, righteousness and wisdom cannot guarantee good times in life. God will not be manipulated, but one future is guaranteed under the sun, death. This is the great leveler, regardless of how a person lives. Regardless of how a person lives, you will still die. You have one life, and your life has an end. It has an end. This is something that... Um, Moses points to, and you know, one of, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 90, and um, almost every, in fact, every funeral I've ever done, I've, I've shared these verses, Psalm 90 and verses 10 and 12, <clears throat> and when I was uh, a hospice chaplain, I would share this with just about every, everyone, and Moses writes, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to might, 80 years, Yet their pride is but labor and wickedness. For soon it is gone and we fly away. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. There's a sense that we, we all know that our lives have an end, but too often we put it off and we put it off and we put it off as saying it will be way later. But even as Moses says, the days of our lives, they, they contain 70 or if due to might 80 years. And so even if you live a long time, I mean, you may have 70, 80, maybe 90. Every once in a while you meet someone that's in their uh, low hundreds. But it's interesting, it, it, even as I was, um, you know, served on hospice and, and for a hospice company, and I, I would see, you'd see the data, because we have, you know, a couple hundred, always carry two to 250 patients, so to speak, and you could see their ages. And for the most part, it was 70 or 80 years, 70s and 80s. Every once in a while, we'd have some people in their 60s or a person in their 50s or 40s. And every once in a while, we'd have some people in their 90s or 100. But for the most part, 70s and 80s. It's just, that's life. And that's why Moses says, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And it's not as if we can precisely and accurately number every single one of our days, but that we understand and we come to grips with the fact that our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. And that number will come to an end. And you don't know when or how it will end. You know, growing up, I, I, I grew up in the, in the 80s, and, and maybe I'm part of the the video game Nintendo generation. Growing up playing video games in almost every video game you could um, get bonus lives or you get a cheat code for extra lives. And, you know, you, there's just a sense that you could always do it over or always get more. Or you always have a second chance. But real life is not like that. There are no second chances. You play the game once and that's it. You have one life to live. One life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. In a CT stud. Or Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Another verse I would often share, share with people that were on hospice or close to death or, um, you know, people that didn't know how much time they had left, I tell them, well, you have an appointment. And you won't be early and you won't be late. You will be right on time, but you do not know when that time will be. But know this, that it is appointed. And God has made that appointment. 
Until that, that time, you are to live in a way which honors him, acknowledges that he, that he is your creator and you are accountable to him. So Solomon tells us that, first, understand that your life is in God's hands. Second, understand that you only have one life. Third, live life while you have it. Because you only have one life and that your life is in God's hands, you might as well live life while you have it. Verses 4 to 6. For whoever is joined with all the living, there is confidence. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything. Nor have they any longer a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished. And they will never again have a portion in all that is done under the sun. We are given one life and we are to live life while we have it because someday it's going to be gone. And there's this illustration, this analogy which Solomon uses that a live dog is better than a dead lion. And what he's talking about here, we, we don't really grasp this because... A lot of us have dogs and we have pets or we've had a dog. And in our Western culture in America, we treat pets really well, almost too well, you know. And so we see dogs as good, as man's best friend. But in ancient Israel, dogs were, they were, they were despised. They were scoundrels. They were scavengers. They carried disease, um, people didn't necessarily have dogs as pets. And to, for someone to be called a dog was derogatory. It was demeaning. Yet uh, contrary to that is the lion is, uh, you know, an animal of strength and, and power and um, a bit of honor. You know, um, even Solomon's own throne had lions on it. And what Solomon is saying here, that a living dog is better than a dead lion. A lion that's powerful and honorable, a majestic creature, if it's dead, what use is it? But a dog that is despised, is, if it's alive, it's, at least it has life. And so as long as we have life, we are to live it in a sense. Because he's saying that the dead, they're, they're dead, they're gone. And we don't really know um, too much of Solomon's conception uh, or of the afterlife. And, and many Old Testament saints, they, they knew there was an afterlife, they knew there was a judgment, but they didn't have the fuller revelation which we have in the New Testament. But he did know that once you're dead, you're dead. You face God's judgment and then whatever that involves. But it's better to be living than dead, and if you're living, you might as well live the life you have while you have it, because you don't know how long you will have it, and you don't know how long you will have the condition of life you have now, because diseases come, accidents happen, uh, you know, disabilities come, so you ought to live, the, live life while you have it. Fourth, Solomon tells us to enjoy the life you do have. Enjoy the life you do have. Verses 7 to 9. Go then, eat your bread in gladness and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. See life with the woman whom you love all the days of your vain life which he has given to you under the sun all the days of your vanity. For this is your portion in life and in your labor in which you have labored under the sun. Enjoy the life you do have. Enjoy the, the good things in life. God has given us good things. And yes, um, all of us are different and we, we have uh, a different level of, I guess, prosperity or comfort or... Um, health, but nonetheless, God has given us good things, uh, food, shelter, and clothing, and he's given us those good gifts, and we are to enjoy them. 
We're to enjoy them. And, and he, he, Solomon uses uh, the, just the picture of, uh, that is used all throughout the Old Testament and in the time of that culture, bread and wine. Bread and wine is just a picture of God's provision and his blessing. And, and this is not a license to excess or hedonism, but of liberty. Eat your bread in gladness and, and drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy the good things that God has given you. You know, uh, too often we can, um, in our church culture, and especially in conservative church culture, we can look down at um, people in the world and it, it's easy to fall into the trap of legalism and self-righteousness, or to swing the pendulum all the other way to licentiousness and cheap grace and just do whatever we want. But we are to enjoy our lives within God's guidelines and those legitimate, um, legitimate exercises or use of his gifts. He's given us good things. This is Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as he's explaining um, the exercise of Christian liberty. And at the end of the, this chapter, he's talking, he uses a, the illustration of, of eating meat and whether or not someone should eat meat that has been um, sacrificed to idols and then sold um, out of a temple. And he's in a sense saying, well, you know, some, some believers, they have... Um, their conscience is, is such that it doesn't bother them. And others, it does bother them. So, you know, whether you eat or drink, it, it doesn't really matter as long as your conscience is clear and you do it with thanks and you do all to the glory of God. As he says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As long as it's not a particular, um, specific explicit sin, then you are to enjoy God's good gifts, not overindulgence in, in gluttony and drunkenness or licentiousness. But, you know, we're, we're not to, um, as one preacher um, has said on this passage, that um, to fall into legalism and self-righteousness to the extent that we suck the joy out of all of our lives. God has given us good gifts in this vain life in a sin-cursed world. And if he's given us good gifts, then we ought to enjoy them. But we live within God's guidelines for a blessed and happy life. He goes on, he says, Let your clothes be white all the time and let not oil be lacking on your head. Many have taken this clothes be white as almost an indication of living a pure life, living a holy life. Um, an unstained life, a blameless life. But it may be more along the lines of in that culture of um, you know, being uh, protected from the sun in, in terms of you know, in a dry, arid, uh, more of a desert-like culture. Um, you, know, you want, as they wore, loose, flowing clothes. And if the brighter, the whiter they are, the, the less it would attract the sun's heat. And also with oil, to smooth your dry skin. But nonetheless, it, it does point to one aspect of, of living pure and blameless, and then the other aspect of, you know, um, enjoying God's good gifts and his provisions, even the provisions of clothing and oil that he gives us. We're also to acknowledge God's, God's gifts and, and Enjoy them and thank him for them. See life with the woman whom you love all the days of your vain life. As later on in the New Testament, it would say, Paul says that, that marriage is the, the grace of life. It's the grace of life. And it, it is true that marriage, if not, um, not done right, if, if a husband does not live the way he is commanded to and a wife does not live the way she is commanded to according to scripture, then, then marriage in a sense can bring the most misery, pain, and torment um, in a person's life. But if it's done right, 
if a husband does what he's supposed to do and a, a wife does what she's supposed to do, it is the grace of life. As Solomon says, um, says in, here in the same book that two are better than one. For if one falls, another can lift them up. And so marriage is a grace of, of life, and we are to enjoy it. It's supposed to be enjoyable. And those of us who are married, we know that um, there are times in our marriage that just living with, you know, two sinners under one roof. <laughs> it's just, you know, there's, there's things you have to deal with because we have different perspectives and opinions and, and outlooks, and uh, we want our way because we're all inherently selfish. But nonetheless, if we do it the way God has called us to do it, and we live how we're supposed to, it is the grace of life. It is a good gift that we are to enjoy. We are to enjoy. Enjoy his good gifts. Thank him for them. Fifth, in this first category of things to do, what you need to do in the game of life, the, the positive commands. Fifth, do the work you've been given. Do the work you've been given. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no working or explaining or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Do the work you have been given. And, and you know, we, we don't, this verse, this, this command, um, it doesn't necessarily impact us as much in our day and age um, as it did even 100 years ago. Because up until about maybe 100 or 200 years ago, um, your vocation for a lot of people was almost picked for you. A lot of times you just did what your, your parents did. Um, they were farmers, so you're a farmer. Uh, your dad was a blacksmith, so you're a blacksmith, or whatever it, it, the case was. Or, or you might have a handful of options. But nowadays, it, it seems like, um, you know, as many parents tell their kids, you can be whatever you put your heart to or whatever you set your heart to. And, and in a sense, uh, there is a sense where um, the possibilities are endless in terms of our career and, and our vocation and what work we find to do. But there's also a sense that we know that we end up with the job we have because maybe there was no other job, or, or maybe that's what we went to school for, or maybe that's really what we want to do, or given the options, that's the best choice. But whatever the case may be, as Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. In a sense, do the work you've been given. As I said earlier, that in Proverbs, and, and Solomon says this, that, that man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. There is uh, providence in our lives and in, in that, you know, you talk to, uh, you know, generally someone who is older, you know, the older they are, they can look back and they can tell you, I don't know how I ended up here. <laughs> I don't know how I had this job. And, and it's, it's even um, rare to find somebody who's had the same job with the same company in the same place their whole lives. That's rare. But whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it with all your might because in a sense, God has given you that work to do. And there is no working or explaining or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. There's a sense that God created us for work. And we are to be thankful for that work and find enjoyment in the work that we do. One commentator, he writes this, that Solomon adds a new dimension to his counsel concerning life. Though much of life is futile, one must grasp its opportunities and use them to the fullest in serving God. There will be no such opportunities in the grave. Every man has a particular work which is accomplished in this life or not at all. We are created to work. Uh, God gave Adam work in the garden and, and that was before the fall. So work is not in and of itself bad or evil. It's actually good. But after the fall be, and because of the fall, Work gets harder. There's thorns and thistles. There's, you will, from the sweat of your brow, you will eat your bread. But nonetheless, we are to work at whatever work that we find to do. And we are to work while we can. And we are to do so with excellence. 
Jesus even told his disciples, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And Jesus was speaking about that in, in terms of his ministry. It's not just our vocation. And, and Jesus did what he did have a vocation before his ministry. And he, being the perfect man, uh, was, in a sense, the perfect employee or the perfect uh, uh, self employed businessman as a builder or a carpenter. He did his work to the glory of God with excellence. And then even his ministry. Understanding that there was a time when there will no longer be a time to work. In this whole section, um, Dr. Will Varner, he comments on this first half of this chapter. And he says this. He says, we are simply encouraged to rejoice in what God has provided now. These exhortations to eat with joy and live happily with one's wife indicate the legitimate pleasures of life. It is a command to live joyfully. The Lord has allotted to us this portion of genuine rejoicing. Rejoicing and giving yourself to whatever is set before you means give it all that you have to give. For many this will end, so for the moment allow joy and pleasure to be part of your life. So we have that first category, what you need to do in the game of life and all these uh, positive rules uh, to follow to successfully navigate life. And then now we come to this second half, and um, I spent a lot of time in the first half, so I'll try to speed up a little bit. But what not to do in the game of life. The rest of the chapter, uh, four uh, do-nots. Four do-nots. First, don't place your trust and hope in your abilities. Don't place your trust and hope in your abilities. In verse 11, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the mighty and neither is bread to the wise nor riches to the discerning nor favor to men who know for time and misfortune overtake them all. Don't place your trust and hope in your abilities. And here uh, Solomon gives us four pictures. Four pictures. The athlete, the soldier, the entrepreneur, and the sage. And first, the, the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the mighty. Neither is bread to the wise, nor riches to the, the discerning, nor favor to men who know, for time and misfortune overtake them all. You know, we, we probably, many of us probably know stories, heard stories of um, people who almost became a professional athlete, or almost won the race, or they were a professional athlete for a time, and then injury came, or something happened, some misfortune ended their career. Uh, even, uh, it's interesting, you, you hear about uh, Olympic hopefuls, and it's one thing to be in the Olympics, to train to be in the Olympics. It's a whole other thing to actually get there. Because, you know, uh, Olympic history is full of people who, for whatever reason, either they got a serious in illness or, or in their training, or they got an injury, and it could have even been something slight, but it took them off track, and so they were not able to compete. The same is true about the soldier. There's stories in every war about you know, the, the mighty man, the, the, the most competent soldier who dies first. As skillful and as, as an elite of a soldier that he is, he, he dies first. Same with an entrepreneur. You know, earlier in, in my life, I, I, I wanted to get rich, as most young people do, because, you know, being rich is better than being poor. And so I would read stories about entrepreneurs who got rich. And I remember reading one book by um, a man, and he said, you know, when I was, he was an oil tycoon, and he said when... We were young and we were trying to get rich and there was other oil tycoons all around us and he's like, and we all made mistakes and, and I made just as many mistakes as, as they did and for whatever reason, uh, he's like, I don't know why I made it, it's just the opportunities lined up one after another. Yes, I tried to be wise and tried to do the right thing, but other people were just as smart as me and, and some mistake or whatever took them out of the game, so to speak. And so they didn't achieve what I achieved. And the same with the wise men. 
the, the, the sage, those who are discerning, those who have wisdom, those who even try to advance their wisdom in their education, time and misfortune still overtake them all. That's why, why uh, God um, says, speaking through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9, says this, Thus says Yahweh, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. You know, we, we're not to boast in anything, in our abilities. We're not to place our trust and hope in our abilities because our abilities can either fail us or despite our best efforts, we might not ever be able to achieve what we want to achieve because uh, time and misfortune overtake them all. Solomon's next um, lesson, what not to do in the game of life, don't place your trust and hope in times. Or, or seasons, so to speak. Uh, verse 12. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish seized in an evil net and birds seized in a trap, so the sons of men are ensnared in an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. Don't, don't place your trust and hope in times, in the seasons of life, those, those good times, or that we, we see this opportunity right on the horizon, or if... if, if uh, Things line up the way we want. We, we you know, finish this, um, this degree program or we um, complete this apprenticeship or you know, we make this business deal. Then things will be good and, and we'll make more money and we'll have more things or maybe this opportunity will open up in a different state that I always wanted to live in. Or once I get to this certain stage of life and I find that special someone, my soulmate, and then everything will be happy and we'll, we'll live happily ever after. Saying, man does not know his time. And he's saying that most, um, uh, more in the sense of um, his entire time of life. But there's also a sense of we don't know the seasons of life either. We're not to tr place our trust and hope in, in the seasons of life or, or the time that we do have. Or, you know, I, I'm healthy and I'm, uh, everything's working out and, and you know, I, I, I'm blessed. And that doesn't mean that tragedy won't strike us tomorrow. James speaks about this in James chapter 4. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. It's ultimately up to the Lord. We are to be obedient. We are to be responsible. We are to trust Him. But we aren't to place our trust and hope in our abilities or in the times in which we live. Because that can all change. That can change tomorrow. That can change even today. Third, his third do not is don't expect affirmation or retribution. Don't expect affirmation or retribution, verses 13 to 15. Also this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it was great to me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and built large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he provided a way of escape for the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. And this, you know, we, we'd assume that this is a, a true event, but, but it's not so much about the event as it is the principles that, that Solomon is trying to teach us from this event. That, that don't expect affirmation or retribution for the good that you do. You know, the, the world is full of ingrates, freeloaders, and people who will gladly take advantage of you. You, know, you, you can be wise, and, and you can serve other people, and you can do good in this life, and, and people just, they won't even thank you. They won't even acknowledge you. Um, the, and they may even gladly take advantage of you and say, thanks, buddy, and then go on, <laughs> you know. 
Uh, most of you, you've probably seen this. You ever have someone, um, especially in the workplace or, or in school, or um, they steal your idea? You know, they take it from you, they, or, or they, you have something smart to say, and, and they, they, they just take it, and they rephrase it and put it in another way and, and almost uh, present it as if it's their own idea. Or, or you gave them an idea, and they were thankful for it, but then they never tell where they got that idea from. Or they never pay you back for something that you loan them or your service or they're just freeloaders and, and people that will gladly take advantage of you or, you know, um, just expecting that, you know, I did all this good and, and I'm helping people out and surely they will thank me, surely they will honor me. And Solomon is in a sense saying, don't expect it. Don't expect affirmation or retribution. It's the same as this, this poor man. He, he delivered this whole city through his wisdom, and no one remembered him. Like, whew, we, we escaped that one. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> you know, it totally forgot him. Happens all the time. You know, and there's a sense that, you know, <clears throat> we shouldn't become cynical. We need to guard against cynicism or becoming bitter or hard-hearted, we, we still need to serve others and be kind and, and bless others. But there's a sense that, you know, it can be really liberating to know that no one cares. Or, or, or they care less than you think they do. There are people who care about you, and generally those are the people closest to you. But more often than not, people don't care as much as you think they do. And you can easily set yourself up for failure in this world by expecting affirmation, expecting retribution. We live in a sin-cursed world, and people will take advantage of you. But that's also not, uh, that doesn't justify becoming cynical and bitter and, and stopping to serve others. We're still to be wise, we're still to be kind, we're still to be loving, we're still to be serving, but we shouldn't expect anything in return. And if somebody does return our um, kindness with kindness, then we rejoice. Finally, Solomon's final lesson, don't be foolish, even if it pays. Don't be foolish, even if it pays. Verses 16 to 18. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in restfulness are better than the shouting of a, a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Saying, don't be foolish even if it pays. And there is a sense that there are times and places in which it pays to be foolish, especially amongst fools. We can think of the entertainment industry and celebrities, and there's a sense that um, you know, being foolish, especially for um, pop stars, um, singers and dancers that you know, um, write songs about foolishness or um, maybe have uh, movies or TV shows or comedy acts, so it's just pure foolishness. And the rest of the foolish world and, and people, they, they laud them for it, they enjoy it, they laugh, they, they are swept up, and, and fools gain influence in this world. They gain popularity, they gain status, money, power. Solomon paints this, this picture. He says, the words of, a wise, of the wise heard in restfulness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. This picture of, and it maybe not just a king, but maybe a nobleman, maybe someone with some clout and some influence, that, um, some uh, charisma, uh, that, a good speaker, that's maybe a fool himself, but because of his shouting and because of his rhetoric, he's able to gain influence and popularity and status amongst other fools. And even if that's the case, even if wisdom is not heard, like the poor man, it still, it still pays to, uh, in a sense, be wise. Don't be foolish, even if that pays. 
it's better to be wise. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Wisdom is, in a sense, usually only appreciated amongst the wise. And there's also a sense that wise choices and actions can be undone by the foolish and the wicked. But in the end, in the end, whatever may come, living wisely honors God, despite whatever happens on earth. It's good to be wise. It's good to serve. Even if you're like the poor man and you, you're never affirmed, you're never thanked, you're, you, you never receive um, pay for what you've done, it's good to be wise. And so Solomon gives us all these lessons. What you need to do in the game of life is to first understand that your life is in God's hands. You only have one life. Live, the li- live life while you have it. Enjoy the life you do have. Do the work you've been given. Don't place your trust and hope in your abilities or in the times and seasons of life. Don't expect affirmation or retribution from others for the good that you've done. And don't be foolish, even if it pays to be foolish. But ultimately, the main lesson in this whole chapter and in much of Ecclesiastes is that we only have one life. We only have one life. And I said that, that short saying uh, of, from a poem that most of us are familiar with by C.T. Studd, who was a famous uh, cricket player. He was, in a sense, a professional athlete, and he was also wealthy and, uh, in the 1800s, mid-1800s. And he, then he got saved, and he gave it all up for missions. He gave it all up. And we hear this saying, we, we might have it on signs, um, we might have it on little posters, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. But it's interesting that that came, that, that's just one line from this poem that he wrote. And I'd like to read it in closing. This poem that is just convicting. He says this, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, this still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, Then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We don't know what tomorrow may bring. We don't know the tragedies or the blessings or the challenges that wait around the corner. But we do know this, that God has created us. He's given us life. We are to live it to him. 
And if we are in Christ, he has redeemed us. He has saved us from the just condemnation which we deserve in hell. And we are to even more so live for him. Because it's only one life. It will soon be passed. And only what's done for Christ will last. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the conviction that these words brought to us for confronting us with our own mortality and just the brevity of life. We all like to think that we have years or um, that our plans will um, come to fruition or that things will work out according to how we desire. And yet oftentimes we um, go through life and we face challenges and trials But then there are those times in which you give us those unexpected blessings in which you pour out your grace upon us. But whatever may happen in the future, you created us not for ourselves but for you. So help us, Lord, to live for you and to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.